Hello everybody. It is the end of my work week, so that means it's time for you to join me on the Homeward Path. This is the show that I record in my vehicle on the way home from work at the end of the work week. And my name is Adam. I'm a husband, father of three, work a full-time job, and listen, magic's tough. It takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and if you're like me and don't have a lot of either one of those things because other responsibilities come first, then you should probably stay tuned because I'm here to try to show you how I am seeking improvement at Magic under difficult time and financial constraints. But before we get started, I need to remind you that I'm a part of the Constructed Criticism Network of Shows. If you haven't checked out the other content on the network, it is fantastic, and you are doing yourself a disservice by not doing so. Uh, We bid a hopefully temporary farewell to the Arena Mythic cast, but Spencer returns, makes a glorious return to the flagship Constructed Criticism show. Uh, We've got Common Knowledge with Brad and Christian, and we've got... Sam Black, one of the icons, one of the legends of Magic the Gathering, with his insights unlimited. So we've got something for everybody. Out of the group, I'm probably the most casual, and I'm kind of trying to lay into that, embrace that, lean into it a little bit more. But check out the network, and don't forget to check out our sponsors, which I'll read off at the beginning of each segment. How's it going, everybody? I hope everyone's well. Uh, Many, many, many profuse apologies for the delay this week. Uh, We got some not great news from my mother's doctor's appointment and my daughter's doctor's appointment, and I have just had a rough time processing all of it, if I'm being honest. But we're back. I'm not going to say better than ever because that would be a lie, but we're back. And uh, let's dive into our first segment every episode, Budget Spotlight. Budget Spotlight's where I'm highlighting an uncommon, a rare, a mythic, and a card with a commander sort of slant that I feel like are worth more either in gameplay terms or in terms of price tag than their current usage rates and or price tag suggest. This segment is brought to you by our sponsorship from Pure MTGO. Pure MTGO is one of the largest selections of magic content on the web. You can get something for basically everything you have interests in for magic on that site. You can find content creators that make content for everything. Pauper, Commander, Standard, Modern, Vintage Cube, uh you know, battle box. I don't care what it is. You can probably find a creator on that site that's got your content covered. And that sponsorship is made possible by their sponsor at MTGO Traders. Listen, if, if you're into MTGO and you've been using rental services and you've been frustrated with difficulty and card availability of late, Why don't you just go over to MTGO Traders and get your own cards? And then when you don't want them, you can flip them. Kind of seems like a win to me. So, you know, maybe go over there and check that out. Uh, 
But first on our list this week is our uncommon Parasitic Grasp. Parasitic Grasp is one in a black, instant, uh, and it has cleave. And for those of you who don't know, haven't read up on the mechanics from Innistrad uh, Crimson Vow, cleave is a mechanic where you can pay in a, you can pay a different mana cost, and it's basically a functional retrain of overload where instead of replacing a word in the text you're actually removing words from the text and in the case of parasitic grasp your text is uh, three damage to target human creature and you gain three life the cleave cost is one black black and if you pay that mana cost instead of the uh, one in a black, so essentially you're paying an extra black mana, you remove the word human. So it's three damage to target human creature and you gain three life for one in a black, or one black black to deal three damage to any creature and gain three life. And the price tag on this thing right now is a quarter in paper on CoolStuffInc.com and a penny on MTGO Traders. So, why am I talking about worse Lightning Helix? It's like the wor one of the worst Lightning Helixes we've gotten, right? Because it only deals damage to creatures, and even then, at two mana, it only deals damage to humans. Well, worse Helix is still a good card for control decks. I have vivid memories of playing Moment of Craving during its tenure in standard. This thing feels an awful lot like a, a, a revamped Moment of Craving. And it's funny that I should call it revamped because Innistrad and Vampire. I'm doing my best here. <laughs> but Worse Helix is still good for control decks because Worse Helix is still a removal spell with a life buffer to serve as a pseudo tempo play. I.e., you kill a creature and then neutralize another one for another combat step. So essentially, you get to draw one extra card that you maybe wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And it's worth pointing out that even at, even in the three mana fail state, right? Like it's not great at three mana, but it's not terrible. It punches up a lot. Uh, trades even on mana value against the likes of Reckless Stormseeker, uh, Tovalar. Uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank right now trying to remember cards that are in standard that aren't in decks I play. <laughs> yeah. Still takes out an elite spellbinder. It takes down a Valky before it can flip. Oh, and by the way, let's go back through some of these threats again. Let's note how many of them are human. In standard, I mean, all of the werewolves are human on the front side. Delver Secrets is human on the front side. Uh, Clever Lumamancer is a human. Uh, most of the deck, most of the cards in the mono white deck are human. I mean, you look at older formats. Monastery Swift Spear is a human. Soulscar Mage is a human. Snapcaster Mage is a human. Mutavault is technically a human. 
Changeling is a mechanic that is being played in standard and other formats. I'm not saying it's a good mechanic, but it is a mechanic that's being played. And then, of course, I mean, there's, there's just a lot of humans. There's a lot of good humans in a lot of formats right now. So it just makes the utility of this card a whole lot higher than I think maybe it looks at first glance. So that's why I've got Parasitic Grasp on the list this week. And next on the list for our rare, we're sticking with the cleave theme. And we're talking about Alchemist's Gambit. Now Alchemist's Gambit is one red red sorcery. A cleave cost of four blue blue red. So seven total mana with at least two blue. Stop me if you've heard that before in standard. Jeez. But, text on the card is, take an extra turn after this one. At the beginning of that turn's end step, you lose the game. Exile Alchemist Gambit. That's the three-mana version. If you spend the seven, if you pay the cleave cost, you remove, at the beginning of that turn's end step, you lose the game. You remove that text from the card. So, you start with what is essentially Glorious End or Chance for Glory or uh, Final Fortune. And you punch up to something that resembles an Ulrich's Epiphany. Not as, not quite as good. I'm not going to pretend it is. But, you have your choice of a chance for glory or just a regular 7 mana time war. So, it's part Glorious End, part sort of worse Ulrich's Epiphany. But there's an upside to this over Epiphany from the investment standpoint. And that is, Gambit is going to be legal in standard alongside Galvanic Iteration for the entire time both cards are legal. Like, Galvanic Iteration just came out in Innistrad Midnight Hunt, and then Alchemist Gambit comes out now in Innistrad Crimson Battle. So, they're going to be in standard together and rotate out at the same time. That's kind of a big deal. Because you look at a lot of the, the other cards in the Blue-Red Epiphany deck, and you've got Expressive Iteration that'll rotate ahead of it. You've got Goldspan Dragon, Ulrin's Epiphany, uh, Cinderclasm, Crush the Weak, Frostbite, Snowlands in general. Behold the Multiverse. All these are cards that rotate out ahead of Galvanic Iteration. So, knowing that there's an alternative that will be legal after all those cards leave, that still gives you potentially at least a reason to play the deck. It's kind of a big deal. And not for nothing... But you start looking at extra turn spells, either because you're 
a sociopath who doesn't want anyone else to have any fun, or because, like me, you occasionally like to look them up for commander decks, and you start noticing a trend of basically all of them being in that, like, $15 to $20 range, except for the 6 and up mana value. And, uh, spoiler alert, this one's a $1.50 in paper, and $0.08 cents on Magic Online. $1.50 and $0.08, cents, respectively. It's literally one-tenth the cost of an Allrins Epiphany. You can get four of these and go buy lunch and still not cost as much as two Allrins Epiphanies. I think I'll take my chances. Yeah. So, our next one, our Mythic for this week, we're sticking with the theme of expensive blue cards now, or, I guess, cards that seem blue, whatever, is Mordenkainen, and I may have done Mordenkainen before, I know I've talked about him for the control decks in the past, but I don't know that I've ever profiled it as a budget spotlight piece, but Mordenkainen is four and blue-blue, Planeswalker, or Legendary Planeswalker Mordenkainen. I believe enters the battlefield with five loyalty, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly. And you have plus one, either plus one or plus two. I think it's plus one. Uh, draw two cards, put a card from your hand on the bottom of your library. Minus three. Create a blue illusion or blue dog illusion token. Whose power and toughness are equal, it's, uh, sorry, let me get this straight here. A blue illusion, a blue dog illusion creature token. That token has, this creature's power and toughness are equal to the number of cards in your hand. Or twice the number of cards in your hand. And then, honestly, I don't even remember what the ultimate does. Something about drawing a bunch of cards, if I remember correctly. So, from the standpoint of cards that really fit their color identity, is there a more fitting Planeswalker to win games in your blue control decks than Mordenkainen? You are literally a Planeswalker that cares about, one, drawing cards, and two, winning the game because you drew a lot of cards because that dog token gets bigger and you can keep making them as the game goes on. You know, at six mana, make an 8-8 eight, eight and leave behind a Planeswalker, it's not terrible. Obviously, Fading Hope exists in standard, so it lowers the utility a little bit. As do cards like Portable Hole or Blood Chief's Thirst or Shadow's Verdict or it's just really a lot of cards that can snipe that token out for one mana or as part of an overall greater effect, but if they're doing that, they're not killing the Mordekainen and that's an upside but like, seriously, it just it draws cards and then it kills your opponent faster because you did 
That's like the bluest thing ever. And it's a mythic in a standard legal set, has some value as a planeswalker that finishes games in control decks. And its price tag is $4. 214 on uh, MTGO. So $4 gets your win condition. An actual bona fide win condition. I'll take it. And last but not least, this is the one I'm most excited to talk about. That's part of the reason I left it for last. Lear, Disciple of the Drowned. Lear costs three in blue-blue. For a 3-4 legendary creature human wizard. Lear has two very important lines of text on him. Spells can't be countered. That's not just your spells. Nobody's spells can be countered anymore. So, you know, irony that a good blue legendary creature kind of middle fingers at blue pretty heavily. But we also have another line of text. And that other line of text says, each instant and sorcery in your graveyard has flashback with flashback cost equal to its mana cost. So, you want to talk big deal. Call this thing Thanos because they are inevitable. Seriously. You think about an inevitability engine as like something that, you know, you eventually pull ahead and stay ahead once you get there. What is more of a way to pull ahead and stay ahead than, oops, my graveyard's my hand now. We remember trying to do that with Draw New Lich Lord back in the day. Some of us do. Some of us old people do. We tried to do that with Draw New Lich Lord back in the day. But Lear is just power crep, draw new. Like, I'm not using Lear to play counter spells because obviously it would be pointless. But I can still bounce creatures. I can still kill creatures. I can still draw cards. I don't know that I need the counter spells anymore. Whether this is making your existing busted combo deck even more busted by turning off all your opponent's counter spells, like get that pesky remand, rewind, arcane denial, OG counter spell, get all of that out of the here. We're all nonsense all the time. Like, I need to get two of these, one to go in the 99 of Niv Mizzet Storm for obvious reasons, and then one to go for the other application that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. Like, it's obviously got massive utility if you're doing any sort of like a spell slinger combo, a storm combo, or even just a combo that really wants specific cards to resolve. You can jam Leer down and your opponent has to fight over it because if they don't, the game is over. They can't counter spells anymore. They can't counter spells anymore. They can't stop you from winning the game anymore. And that's kind of a big deal. So, alternately, if it's not a starring player in your 
broken combo deck making your broken combo deck even more broken. We can also talk about Lear as the leader in the clubhouse, if you will, of the weirdest blue control deck you have ever seen. And this is the application that I want to use Lear in, not because I think it's going to be good, but because I think it's going to be fun. In the sense that, like, Leer disincentivizes you from playing a bajillion counter spells in your deck. You probably only want to play two or three. You want to play, like, Arcane Denial, Counter Spell. Do you go Rewind? Do you go Dismiss? Like, you know, one or two more. You might play a total of four or five in your commander deck with Leer as the commander. Because... Yeah, you're going to have some situations where Lear is not on the battlefield or your opponent shuts it off. And you really need the capacity to interact with your opponent's combo. That's fine. But the rest of the deck is just going to be like bounce, card draw, maybe kind of mopey polymorph effects. Maybe polymorph is actually just hilarious in that deck. Maybe that's one of your win conditions. Now that I think about it, I don't know what y'all are about, but the idea that Lear is this sort of classic blue control, but turned on its head because you can't counter spells. You can still bounce spells. You can still exile spells. So cards like Summary Dismissal are still valuable. Because Summary Dismissal doesn't counter anything. It just exiles all spells and abilities on the stack. A card like Unsubstantiate bounces a spell to their hand. Same goes for Divide by Zero. So, in that vein, Lear offers some fantastic utility, even for a blue control deck that is not going to be playing sort of your traditional blue deck role. You can be the fun police without being... A, a fixture of male anatomy. And some of y'all know what I'm euphemizing here. And, I mean, perhaps most importantly, at the price tag of seven to, between seven to eleven dollars, depending on which version you get, I think the black and white one is around seven dollars in paper, and the uh, original printing is around eleven. And then obviously you can scale up into things like foil or pre-release promo or planeswalker symbol or whatever but from the standpoint of price tag for the baseline version seven bucks ain't bad it's not bad at all uh 12 ticks on magic online and oh by the way this thing's in standard and headlines what is essentially a Mardu Pyromancer deck. So it's got some utility in standard in addition to having all these things you can do with it in Commander. Feels like a no-brainer to me. Get your Leer. So that's all I've got for Budget Spotlight. Let's transition into Brew of the Week. Brew of the Week is a segment where I am talking about a deck, an archetype, a specific build that I think 
doesn't get the respect it deserves or has some unique utility in the format that it comes from. And this is a, currently a segment without a sponsor. But this week's brew comes to us courtesy of my friend Chad Powers, who's been playing it for a while. And it's something I wanted to talk about because it's relevant to today's episode topic. His deck is Sultai Control. And listen, I've talked about Blue Black Control on this show a dozen times now. They all do the same thing from a core concept standpoint. Stop me if you've heard this before. You want to exchange resources one for one and then get paid off in the mid-game by drawing cards and then establishing inevitability by playing something that your opponent can't interact with profitably. Ho-hum, blue-black, X, control. It's the same story. Same old song and dance. If you got that reference, don't forget to take your ibuprofen when you get home. Uh, in Chad's case, the win condition in his list takes the form of planeswalkers and skeletal swarming because he wanted the option, at least in the main deck, to completely invalidate opposing creature removal from being able to trade card for card with him ever. Planeswalker-wise, he's playing some combination of Lolf, uh, Professor Onyx, and Morden Kanan alongside Skeletal Swarming. Lolf in particular is really cute alongside Swarming because you, you get, even if they clean the board up, you get counters on Lolf. And then Loth draws cards. And then you get to make more tokens. Like you just you just kind of keep perpetuating this eventual endgame that we were talking about. While stranding basically every creature removal spell in your opponent's hand or forcing your opponent to take a take a one for nothing in order to not die. From a customization mode standpoint, I mean, I'm in, I'm in broken record mode here. Uh, control decks are flexible by design. The green splash in Chad's list is primarily for two cards. That is Binding of the Old Gods and Skeletal Swarming. Binding is particularly interesting here because it gets you to... Uh, seven mana faster so if you wanted to play epiphany in your deck you can it also gets you to Holebreaker horror mana faster if you want to play that and then skeletal swarming is an enchantment that eventually snowballs to win the game in particular for me as customization options go i'm a really big main deck duress guy right now because you look at this, you look at the state of the format right now, and you see decks with Ren and Seven and Chariot. You see decks with fight spells that are problematic to get over if you're trying to just throw a creature in the way. You see decks with Soul Shatter to clear out blockers. You see, you know, Chandra Dress to Kill. You see all these powerful non-creature spells in every deck. And even if you're playing against something like Mono Red or Goblins, sniping a burn spell for one mana ain't bad. 
Because if they're not playing the burn spell, they're not killing you as quickly. Either because they're not removing a blocker, or because it's not going to your face. And our faces are valuable. They're also super squishy sometimes. This list can also be a little bit more liberal with the number of sweepers it plays, because unlike some of the others that are out there that are playing stuff like Hunt for Specimens, playing stuff like Imrith, we don't really have any creatures we care about. So we can really max out on stuff like Shadow's Verdict. Uh, oh, what is that card's name? Anyway, really max out on stuff like Shadow's Verdict, uh, Blood on the Snow, Path of Peril if you want to play, you know, a white source to go get with your binding or with uh, environmental sciences. I mean, there's the, the, the world is your not oyster because those are expensive and I don't like expensive things, but they're, it's, it's, on the, it's on the table for you. From a strengths and weaknesses standpoint, invalidating opposing creature removal while being able to play more efficient creature removal spells yourself, really valuable. It's a big draw to this specific variant in Saltai because you also get removal that furthers your plan in the form of Binding of the Old Gods and a, a uh, win condition that is incredibly difficult for opponents to interact with in the form of Skeletal Swarming. Like, they can't just attack into your swarming to kill it. And in particular, if they are attacking your Planeswalkers to kill them, they're conceivably committing more resources to the board to try to get back the life total advantage and then you get to blow them out with blood on the snow and get your planeswalker back feels like a win-win there for me from a weaknesses standpoint none of your win conditions actually help you stabilize very well like when it comes to gumming up the board and making it to where you live none of those win conditions do a great job of that like, Loth is not a win condition. Loth is just a planeswalker on the table. But, like, Onyx as a win condition is great. But... The best she can do is come down and make them sacrifice one thing. Mordenkainen is great. But if you go six mana, make a dog pass turn, and they untap Fading Hope, kill Mordenkainen, attack you... I don't know how much tempo you've really gained there. <sighs> Same goes for the likes of Portable Hole or uh, Blood Chief's Thirst. It's just, it's, it's kind of mopey. Doesn't feel great for you. So you are really relying on the likes of Sweepers or a combination of Spot Removal and Card Draw to catch you up to an opponent who has a particularly fast start. In that regard, you are much more sort of a tap-out control deck than you are a Drago control deck. Because where the, the Esper Lear deck plays more like a Drago control deck, even though it's got, you know, these elements of mid-range to it, even though that's the case, it's not quite the same because you eventually have the capacity to land a Leer 
and just get all the cards in your graveyard back. So that pays you off for trading one for one. The Planeswalkers and Skeletal Swarming don't really do that. You have to try to get paid off for it yourself. And then the Planeswalkers are supposed to finish the game off gradually from there. Like, it is good in head-to-head matchups against the Esper Lear deck. But beyond, like, beyond Reactive Mirrors, I don't know how great it is compared to the Esper Lear deck against the field. I hope that makes sense. From an Outlook perspective, look, it's a control deck. It's basically always got legs. You keep your opponents from doing anything scary, and you eventually, hopefully, find a way to win the game. This this build in specific, though, gets better the further toward mid-range the format goes. So, if we start seeing a push toward the middle of the game being the important part, as opposed to what we've got right now, where it is the early game or the extreme late game, if we ever get to that sort of typical standard point where we're just kind of trying to go over the top of each other on turns five and six, that's when a deck like this can really shine because your counter spells can trade effectively in those situations and then you can find a way to win the game from there. It's not terribly hard to understand. So that's all we got for Brew of the Week. Remember, if you've got suggestions for that one, one of the easiest ways to move to the front of the line is to become a patron of the show, patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg, which is also how we do the show at all. So, you know, thank you to all of you who have done that so far. Uh, I, I really, really do appreciate it. It has been one of the, it, it's always one of the most exciting things when you get that email and you open it up and you're like, oh my gosh, somebody's like, yeah, no, keep doing what you're doing. I love what you're doing. You feel that in here. I mean, if you can see me, I'm tapping my chest. But So, we've been talking about the mechanics of being on the play versus being on the draw. And two weeks ago, we talked about it just sort of at a fundamental level, what the games are about. And then last week, we talked about it from the perspective of someone who is trying to end the game as quickly as possible. And how they, how they approach being on the play versus being on the draw, whether they're playing against another deck like them or a deck that just actively wants to continue to play the game. Well, this week we're flipping that on its head because we're going the other way. We're the deck that wants to string things out while the, and then we're going to look at how that, how playing, being on the play versus being on the, on the draw affects that. Gonna draw some inspiration from within here. Oh, come on, I'm just playing with you. Anyway. So the fundamentals of being a reactive deck are pretty straightforward. Your primary resource is inevitability. You're banking on the fact that over the course of a long game, your deck is more consistently going to be able to play functionally than your opponents i.e. you are going to continue to have more cards in hand that you can cast or that matter 
as the game goes longer. You are banking on the idea of having more powerful cards as the game goes on, more cards as the game goes on, and more live draw steps as the game goes on. You, at a fundamental level, you are giving up tempo. You are giving up the speed in exchange for long-term advantage. And that's a good thing. You are, you're giving up speed in exchange for long-term advantage. Your overall goal is a simple game state you can manage until a point where, like, your opponent can't win the game anymore, so now you can start trying to. That's what, that's how you're approaching the game of magic as a reactive deck. That's the mindset you're, you're living in. So let's start things off by talking about how you approach it when your opponent's going the opposite direction from you. What if your opponent's the proactive deck, you're the reactive deck? How do you handle that matchup? This is a tale as old as time. This is the oldest matchup in the book. Slow versus fast. Tortoise and the hare. Car versus... I don't know. We'll come up with some more. You want time to set up, and they want to kill you before you can. Play versus draw, honestly, doesn't affect your approach, like your mental approach to how the game works, so much as it does what cards are important. You basically want to pick a spot in your opponent's curve, because they're going to be trying to curve out on you. You want to pick a spot in your opponent's mana development, and just draw a line in the sand right there. This far, no farther, nothing relevant above this cost is going to happen. On the play, you can draw that line a little bit quicker because you can draw it as early as turn three. If you're on the play in standard right now and you just pass turn with three mana up, on the play. Now you can answer Old Growth Troll. You can answer Essica's Chariot. You can answer a host of powerful threats that the opponent can be playing. You can answer the opponent's three drop, or if they're an accelerator deck, you can answer their four drop. Clean out three mana or threaten to be able to answer their three drop plus be able to do something else depending on what it is. I.e., you can, at three mana in standard, you can represent a hard counter spell or you can represent the ability to interact with a threat and fix your hand with consider. Or to interact with a threat and bounce a creature to their hand to keep to slow their clock down even more. Or bounce a thing to their hand, either the spell or the creature, or any other non-land permanent with mana value one or less, and add another card to your hand. So, you draw the line in the sand at turn three. And you are able to trade aggressively at mana value 
at even mana in order to stay ahead. Keep your opponent from playing anything that kills you. That is sort of the fundamental belief in what you're doing here. You are... You... you Take your lumps from their one drop. Probably take a couple lumps from their two drop. But just don't let the threes and fours get you. And then eventually you will be able to catch up to the ones and twos and win from there. On the draw, it's a little bit more complicated. Your overall psychology is the same. You still want... Nothing more or less than keeping your opponent from doing anything too scary. But the fact that your opponent has curve toppers where you can get absolutely punished for trying to sweep the board a turn too early. You know, you sweep the board and your opponent jams a gold span dragon down on you. Or you... Spend two removal spells, and then you don't have one for your opponent's untapping and casting chariot. These are not great situations, to say the least. So, you are trying to avoid falling victim to your opponent's curve toppers. You are going to get beat up a little bit more in the process, and you are going to be relying on a catch-up mechanism. Whether that's getting to a point where you can double spell, uh, play, sideboarding into cheaper removal to be able to keep pace, or some sort of a sweeper, or a card like a Baneslayer Angel or an Emrith. And here's what I mean by that. Baneslayer Angel on the battlefield unanswered is extremely difficult for an aggro deck to be. Full stop. They can attack you, but first strike means they probably don't kill you. Lifelink means they definitely don't kill you. <laughs> and the ability to attack back for five and gain five more, and then you can clean up with a sweeper. That's a big deal. Emrith in Standard is very similar. Because Emrith, it is near impossible to trade at mana value with. You have to play something like a counterspell to keep it from resolving, or a soul shatter type of effect to get it off the table. Otherwise, you look at the other removal spells. I mean, literally anything you could target Emrith with that would remove it from the table is going to cost you at least as much mana as the Emrith did, which means you can't kill Emrith and then do something else that matters. And when it comes to your sideboard plan, just keep theirs in mind too. Because if they're on the play and they know you're on the draw, you're going to be sideboarding into cheaper removal, they might sideboard to go up a little bit on the curve. Play another curve topper or two. So, you know, don't go completely overboard on stuff like... Uh, Lash of Malice and, dis and Disfigure or, you know, things of that nature. When you can get got real easy by good old Goldspan Dragon. 
or Quite Bringer or the the Shatter Skull thing that has you know the five three haste thing. I can't remember the name of. So, and in general, when you're playing these matchups, if at all possible, if you're in a situation where your opponent potentially has an out and you're dead if they do, assume they have it. Play as though your opponent has the out, unless you can't afford, unless you don't win, unless they don't have it. So, how do we take it the other way? In a reactive mirror, things become a whole lot more muddled. That's scenario number two. In a matchup between two reactive decks, things are a little bit more muddled because you're basically doing the same thing here. You're both playing for the same goal. You both want the game to go on as long as possible, at least from a fundamental standpoint. As such, the decision on how to approach playing the matchup is predicated on which one of you has the better end game. Once you understand this, it actually changes pretty dramatically. You go from being a control mirror to treating it like a control versus mid-range deck. Because one of you is always going to have the advantage as the game goes along. It's just a matter of determining what each of you can do. A really good example right now would be the Esper Lear deck versus the Allruns Epiphany decks. Esper Lear, on paper, feels like it should have the better inevitability engine because of Lear. But in practice, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that because Iteration plus Epiphany goes so far over the top of you that you have to respect it. And it's difficult for you to interact with it because you, again, are not playing counterspells. And by not playing counterspells, you are victim somewhat to what the the uh, Epiphany deck can do. So with that in mind, if you're on the draw as the long game advantaged player, you have to make your opponent's interaction hit the things that aren't winning the game. You have to make your opponent fight about things that aren't important. Things that they think are not important. Things that you think are not important. Things like your card draw. Things like your your secondary threats. You know, if you've got, a, got an Epiphany in Fortell and you cast a Goldspan Dragon and your opponent fires off Vanishing Verse, well, guess what? They just gave you Iteration plus Epiphany next turn. Game may not be over, but it's going to be real close to it. Especially if you have another Dragon in that second turn. You want to make your opponent wrong. Make them care about things that don't matter. And then, as the disadvantaged player on the draw, it can be beneficial to actually lean harder into the proactive stance you're forced to adopt. Because, again, your opponent has a better endgame than you, so they actually benefit more from the game going long. So your goal as the disadvantaged player is to actually try to end the game as quickly as possible. So what you want to do is force a threat through 
and then use your removal and disruption and all to protect that threat. Because you can, you know, in, in your main deck configurations, you've probably got some number of creatures already. You just need to make sure you can force those through and get the opponent, you know, if they have it, they have it. Because if they have it, I'm dead anyway. <laughs> but especially after sideboarding, things can take on a whole different complexion. And one of the cleanest examples I've ever seen of this was Teamer Tower during the Sahili, the four-color Sahili format in Standard. Four-color Sahili was ostensibly the more proactive deck between it and Teamer Tower. Teamer Tower was the more reactive deck. But Sahili had a better long game because they always had the threat of being able to kill you out of absolutely nowhere. And you didn't have that to them. So what you would frequently do as the team or tower player is actually sideboard into long tusk cub whirler virtuoso alongside your already played attune with aether harness lightning rogue refiner and your dynavolt tower because that would allow you to turn into this sort of low-to-the-ground energy mid-range deck with a bunch of counter spells in it. And your Long Tusk Cubs could solo your opponent while they were trying to set up, you know, they were using Oath of Nissa to find this and using uh, Oath of Chandra to try to shoot your thing and then you've got the counter spell. You know, or you respond by making tokens so that you have pressure continuing to build, whatever the case may be. I mean, it just, you know, you can, you can sideboard aggressively removing some of your creature removal, which is ostensibly going to be pretty terrible in this mirror anyway. You need a little bit, but you don't need a lot. And then you can lean into the idea of being this sort of tempo deck after sideboarding where you are applying pressure and forcing your opponent to act, knowing that your opponent may have boarded out quite a bit of their removal as well. And then you have sort of the outliers, the other scenarios. Uh, notably, in the reactive mirror, this can actually be one of the few times you want to be on the draw. Because there's, a, there's not a lot of tempo to be leveraged here. You know, it can feel like it sometimes if you're trying to crawl back into it, but, like, your opponent's not killing you very fast. You may feel like you're up against a clock, but you're really not. Now, your other scenarios are your mid-range or your combo matchups, and this is kind of getting back to what we were talking about a minute ago. Mid-range is actually a fairly straightforward matchup. Once you understand that your resource in this matchup is to try to create negative tempo. Not so much that you want to create tempo for yourself where you're applying pressure and denying your opponent draw steps, but that you want your opponent to spend mana for nothing as many times as possible. And once you do that enough times, the opponent runs out of things that will use all their mana they become infinitely less scary and you can start trying to win the game. Combo is a little bit more complex because there's more than one style of combo decks. You've got 
traditional combo, traditional two to three card combo. In the case of Sahili four color, it was sort of a blending of both. It was a two card combo inside your mid-range shell. But it's the looming threat of that overhead. That version, a, a traditional two to three card combo that ends the game on the spot, you're basically playing a reactive mirror against the best end game. Because yours can pressure them, but theirs kills you. It's sort of the, uh, for those of you who may have watched Deadliest Warrior back in the day, it's the, the matchup between the ninja and the Spartan. The, Spart the ninja can hurt the Spartan, but the Spartan can kill the ninja. Every hit is lethal. And they only have to hit you once. It's like bringing a light, it's, you know, bringing a combo deck to a control matchup is like bringing, you know, bringing Splinter Twin to a control matchup is like bringing a lightsaber to a sword fight. They can hurt you, but they got to work really hard for it. And you can kill them by landing one blow. Storm, on the other hand, is like fighting against an aggro deck, but they're not trying to kill you over the course of several turns. So instead of trying to mount your defenses as they curve out, you're trying to mount a critical mass of defenses to interact with them as they attempt to combo off or to remove resources so they can't yet. And then Big Spell, which is your ramp decks, your ultimatum decks, your, I don't know, Alrin's Epiphany decks, is really honestly dependent upon what else your deck is doing i.e. the regular spell-based Epiphany deck is easier to go up against to me than the Dragon's deck with Epiphany in it. Because the Dragon's deck can kill you. Can just casually put you in the ground with a three-turn curve through the mid-game. Cast Goldspan, cast Epiphany, cast Goldspan, attack for lethal. That's, that's enough. Attack for eight, Attack for six, attack for ten. Like it'll it'll get you there. But the ever looming threat of iteration plus epiphany as less a two-card combo and more just trying to make sure your big spell is big enough that's also not great for us, right? It's like we have to live in mortal fear of getting just absolutely buried in extra turns, but we also don't want to get run over by Goldspan Dragon and Smoldering Egg. So we're just really not in a great place. Just, just not where you want to be. So, I mean, other big spell combo decks like the Teamer Adventure mid-range with Genesis Ultimatum. It, you, were, you were playing a mid-range matchup. Genesis Ultimatum was just their curve topper. Uh, Emergent Ultimatum was a dedicated big spell combo. You resolve this card, you were probably going to win the game. So... As the pilot of the control deck, you had to make sure they didn't resolve that card. 
because it was difficult for any of their individual cards to do it on their own. They could start trying to string together Epiphany. As long as you stayed disciplined, you could fight it. The situation we're in right now, I mean, you string together enough copy spells, it doesn't matter how many answers you have. You still lose the game. So it's important to keep in mind what's important. You know, I talked about how I liked main deck duress in the, the control decks. That's a big part of why, because they can't flash back all Ren's Epiphany without their own copies of Lear. So it makes it that much harder for your opponent to combo off. And it means they have, if they are concerned about getting to rest, they have to use time early in the game that they could be using to either interact or develop. They have to use those turns to foretell Epiphany to protect it from discard, which is also super valuable. Uh, a card like Go Blank is super valuable after you sideboard against them. Because you can snipe two cards out of their hand and then get rid of all the galvanic iterations in the graveyard. Get rid of the memory deluges in their graveyards. Whatever the case may be, get it out of here. I don't want to fight with it. But that's the, the mindset going in as the reactive player approaching matchups on the play versus on the draw. You are basically going in with the mindset that you're always on the draw. You're always behind. And that makes it a whole lot easier to adjust your play patterns because all you have to worry about is determining what's important enough to interact with. And that may change a little bit on play versus draw, but it really just comes down to the matchup in front of you. So that's all I've got for this episode, everybody. I want to thank everybody for sticking around listening, watching, whatever. Uh, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, leave them down below. Don't forget to click the subscribe button if you're on YouTube or any other like podcast app that asks you to subscribe. Uh, consider becoming a patron if you love the show and want to support it in a more direct fashion. Remember, that's patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg. Show's always going to be free, but if you like what we're doing enough to help us keep doing it, please head over there, become a patron, take advantage of your rewards, uh, one of the things I'm looking to start doing is a weekly stream in the Patron Pathfinders Discord where I'm playing one of my brews and we can tune it together. I think that would be fun. But that's all I've got for this week. Again, other social media, you can find me on Twitter at OmwardPathMTG. If you want to get to know the man behind the microphone... I'm on TikTok at Homeward Path Gaming. Uh, that's where the MTG dad jokes have migrated. I intend to get some more of those up relatively soon. I've just got to get sort of a critical mass of them and time and the, the drive to get them, <clears throat> get them recorded. But with that, I leave... I hope everybody has a good holiday. The holidays are a rough time of year for a lot of people. So again, please bear in mind, everybody's going through stuff right now. You never know what someone else is going through. So always lead with kindness. Always try to be nice, but never fail to be kind. So laugh hard. 
answer threats, be kind. We'll catch you next week. Be safe, everybody.